0: Book 1, Chapter 9 of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Chapter 9. The Burden of Sweet Speeches. Nay, kneel down, cover thy head, and weep. For verily these marketmen that buy thy white and brown in the last days shall take no thought for thee in the last days like earth thy face shall be yea like sea marsh made thick with brine and mire sad with sick leavings of the sterile sea this is the end of every man's desire the vicar had fully expected to receive one of miss disney's little notes postponing the dinner at ashcombe so foreign was it to the manners and customs of the dowager to extend so much hospitality to her neighbours but instead of the little note of postponement there came a little note to remind and as mr luttrell observed with an air of resignation there was nothing for it but to go then came a grand consultation as to who should go it was not to be supposed that mr luttrell could enter society even in the most friendly way with five women in his wake gertrude at once announced her indifference to the entertainment it was thursday and on that night there was an extra service and a sermon at St. Clement's. She would not lose Mr. Ford's sermon for the world. And I should think you would hardly miss that, Lizzie. she said, since you have become so staunch a Fordite. But on this Mrs. Chevenix protested vehemently that Elizabeth must go to Ashcombe. She had been especially mentioned by the Viscount. He was to teach her basique. I know all about basique already, and i hate it elizabeth answered coolly but i should like to see a dinner at ashcombe i want to see whether it will be all make-believe like the barmecides feast or whether there will really be some kind of food upon the table my impression is that the dinner will consist of a leg of mutton and an it was decided therefore after a little skirmishing between the sisters that elizabeth and diana should accompany mr luttrell and mrs chevenix to ashcombe that gertrude and blanche should stay at home the vicarage wagonette which had a movable cover that transformed it into a species of genteel baker's cart would hold four very comfortably the vicar could afford to absent himself for once in a way from the thursday evening service which was an innovation of mr ford's the appointed day was not altogether unpropitious but was hardly inviting a dull dry winter day with a grey sunless sky and a north-east wind, which whistled shrilly among the leafless elms and beeches of the wide avenue in Ashcombe Park as the vicarage wagonette drove up to the house. Ashcombe Park was a great tract of low-lying land, stretched at the feet of a rugged hill that rose abruptly from the very edge of the wide lawn on one side of the house and overshadowed it with its gaunt outline like a couchant giant. The mansion itself was a triumph of that school of architecture in which the research of ugliness seems to have been the directing principle of the designer's mind. It was a huge red-and-yellow brick edifice of the Vanborough School, with a ponderous centre and more ponderous wings, long ranges of narrow windows, unrelieved by a single ornament, broad flights of shallow stone steps on each side of the tall central door, a garden door at the end of each wing, an inner quadrangle, embellished with a hideous equestrian statue of some distinguished Pauline who had perished at Malplaquet, a house which in better occupation and with lighter surroundings might not have been without a certain old-fashioned dignity and charm of its own peculiar order, but which in the possession of Lady Pauline wore an aspect of depressing gloom. There were some darksome specimens of the conifer tribe, in huge square wooden tubs on the broad gravelled walk before the principal front, but there was no pretence of a flower garden on any side of the mansion. Lady Pauline abjured floriculture as a foolish waste of money. The geometrical flower beds in the Dutch garden that had once adorned the south wing had been replaced by a flat expanse of turf on which her ladyship's sheep ranged at their pleasure. The wide lawn before the grand saloon a panelled chamber of fifty feet long with musical instruments and emblems painted in medallions on the panels was also a pasture for those useful animals which sometimes gazed through the narrow panes of windows with calm wondering eyes while lady paulyn and hilda sat at work within lord paulyn was pacing the walk by the conifers as the wagonette drove up and flew to assist the vicarage man of all work in his attendance upon the ladies i'm so glad you've all come he exclaimed as he handed out elizabeth apparently unconscious of the absence of her two sisters very good of your father to bring you to such a dismal hole i sometimes wonder my mother and hilda don't go to sleep for a hundred years like the girl in the fairy tale from sheer inability to get rid of their time in any other way but they sit and stitch 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 like a new version of the song of the shirt and write letters to distant friends and the lord knows what about hey Treby, take care of the ladies wraps will you he said to a feeble old man in a threadbare suit of black who was my lady's butler and house steward and was popularly supposed to clean the knives and fill the coal scuttles in a cavernous range of cellars with which the mansion was undermined The Viscount led the way to the drawing-room, or saloon, that spacious apartment with the flesh-coloured panelling which had been originally designed for a music-room. It was a stately chamber with six long windows and two fireplaces with high, narrow mantelpieces, upon each of which appeared a scanty row of tiny Nankin teacups. Scantiness was indeed the distinguishing feature of the Ascombe furniture from garret to cellar, but was perhaps more strikingly obvious in this spacious apartment than in any other room in the house. A faded and much-worn turkey carpet covered the centre of the floor, a mere island in an ocean of beeswaxed oak. A few spindle legged chairs and tables were dotted about here and there. Two hard-seated couches of the classic mould, their frames rosewood inlaid with brass their cushions covered with a striped satin damask, somewhat frayed at the edges and exhibiting traces of careful repair stood at a respectful distance from each fireplace and one easy chair of a more modern manufacture but by no means a choice or costly specimen of the upholsterer's art was drawn close up to the one hearth upon which there burned a somewhat meagre pile of small wood the very waste and refuse of the timber yard lady paulyn was seated in this chair with a little three-cornered shawl of her own knitting drawn tightly round her skinny shoulders as if she would thereby have eked out the sparing supply of fuel miss disney sat at one of the little tables remote from the fire copying a column of figures into an account book both ladies rose to receive their guests but not with a rapturous greeting it's very good of you to come all this way to see a quiet old woman like me said the dowager as if she hardly expected them in spite of hilda's note to remind why the deuce don't you have a fire in both fireplaces in such weather as this mother the viscount demanded shivering as he placed himself on the centre of the hearth rug, and thus obscured the only fire there was I never have had two fires in this room, Reginald, and I never will have two fires, replied the dowager resolutely. When I can't sit here with one fire, I shall leave off sitting here altogether. I don't hold with your modern, luxurious habits. But it must have been an ancient habit to warm this room a little better than you do, or it would hardly have been built with two fireplaces, said Lord Pauline. "'That, I imagine, was rather a question of architectural uniformity,' replied the dowager. "'There's the luncheon gong,' said her son. "'Perhaps we shall find it a little warmer in the dining-room.' There was a good deal of ceremony at Ashcombe, considering the scantiness of the household, and Lady Pauline took no refreshment that was not heralded by beat of gong.' Her little bit of roast mutton or her fried sole and skinny chicken cost no more on account of that majestic prelude and it kept up the right tone as my lady sometimes observed to hilda the luncheon to-day though quite a festive banquet in comparison with the silver biscuit barrel and mouldering stilton cheese which formed the staple of the daily meal was not too bountiful a repast there was a gaunt piece of ribs of beef bony and angular as of an ox that had known hard times at one end of the long table a melancholy-looking roast fowl with huge and scaly legs whose advanced age ought to have held him sacred from the assassin and who seemed to feel his isolated position on a very large dish with a distant border of sliced tongue lemon and parsley There were two dishes of potatoes, fried and boiled. There was a little glass dish of marmalade that was made quite a feature of on one side of the board, and a similar dish containing six anchovies reposing in a grove of parsley, which enlivened the other side. There was an artistic preparation of beetroot and endive on a central dish, and two ponderous diamond-cut celery glasses, scantily supplied with celery. These, with a pickle-stand or two, and a good deal of splendour in the way of cruets, gave the table an air of being quite liberally furnished. The meal was tolerably cheerful, despite a certain toughness and wooden flavour in the viands. Mr. Luttrell pleaded his sworn enmity to luncheons as an excuse for not eating anything, and conversed agreeably with the dowager, who had brightened a little by this time, and seemed determined to make the best of things lord paulyn sat between mrs chevenix and elizabeth and had a good deal to say for himself in one way or another he was enchanted to hear that elizabeth was to have a season in town next year you must come to me for the oxford and cambridge mind mrs chevenix he said i always charter a crib i beg your pardon take a house on the river for that event i thought miss elizabeth would never consent to be buried alive down here all her days she isn't like my mother and hilda it suits them very well there's something of the fossil in their composition and a century or so more or less in a pit doesn't make any difference to them i'm so glad i shall see you in town next year this to elizabeth and with an extreme heartiness he could hardly behave like this to every pretty girl he met, Mrs. Chevenix thought. It must mean something serious. And in the dim future, she beheld herself allied to the peerage through her niece, Lady Pauline. The Viscount seemed very glad when luncheon was over and he could carry off the two young ladies to see the family portraits. Oh, you won't care much about that kind of thing, I dare say, he said to Mrs. Cheveny not caring to be troubled with that matron's society. You'd rather stop and talk to my mother. There's nothing would give me more pleasure than a chat with dear Lady Pauline, simpered Aunt Chevenix, inwardly shuddering, as she remembered her vain attempt to interest that inexorable dowager. But my brother Wilmot seems to have a great deal to say to her, and if I have a passion for one thing above another, it is for family portraits.' especially where the family is ancient and distinguished like yours. Oh, very well, then, you can come, of course. I'll show you the old fogies, my grandfathers and great-grandfathers and all their brotherhood and sisterhood. (laughs) Miss Disney will accompany us, of course, said Mrs. Chevenix, smiling graciously at Hilda, who sat opposite to her, very fair to look upon in her waxwork serenity. Ah, hilda knows the pictures by heart she'd rather sit by the fire and spin or go on with those everlasting accounts she's always scribbling for my mother i will come if you like mrs chevenix replied hilda ignoring her cousin's remark the party of exploration therefore consisted of three damsels mrs chevenix and lord paulyn a party large enough to admit of being divided a result which Aunt Chevenix had laboured to achieve. Lord Pauline straggled off at once with Elizabeth through the long suite of upper chambers with deep oaken seats in all the windows, Hampton Court on a small scale, leaving Hilda to play Cicerone for Mrs. Cheveny and Diana, whom her aunt contrived to keep at her side. This left the coast clear for the other two, whose careless laughter rang gaily through the old empty rooms merciless was the criticism which those departed Paulins suffered at the hands of their graceless descendant and elizabeth luttrell the scowling military uncles the blustering naval uncles the smirking grandmothers and aunts with powdered ringlets meandering over bare shoulders or flowing locks and loose bodice of the Lely period lord Paulin entertained his companions with scraps of family history mess alliances extravagances and other misdeeds which did not tend to the glorification of that noble race but reginald Paulin did not devote all his attention to his duties as cicerone he had a great deal to say to elizabeth about himself and his own affairs and a great many questions to ask about herself her likings and dislikings and so on i'm sure you're fond of horses he said a girl with your superior intellect must be fond of horses.' I didn't know that taste was a mark of superior intellect. I may have a dormant passion for horse-flesh, certainly, but you see it's never been developed. I can't go into raptures about Toby, that big horse you saw in the wagonette. I used to be very fond of Cupid, a pony that Blanche and I rode when we were children, but unfortunately Cupid grew too small for me. Or at least I grew too big for Cupid and Papa gave him away. That's all my experience of horses. Bless my soul! exclaimed the Viscount with a distressed air. It seems a burning shame that a girl like you should get so little out of life. Why, you ought to have a couple of hunters and follow the hounds twice a week every season. It would be an introduction to a new existence and you ought to have a pair of thoroughbred ponies and a nice little trap to drive them in <laughs> elizabeth laughed gaily at this suggestion <laughs> a clergyman's daughter with her own hunters and pony carriage would be rather an incongruous person she said but you're not going to be a clergyman's daughter all your life when you come to london you'll see things in a very different light oh london repeated elizabeth with a little sigh yes i think i should like that kind of life only the poor old home will seem ever so much more dismal afterwards i sometimes fancy i could bear it better if there were not quite so many sundays the week-days would go drifting by and no one would hardly know how long the dreary time was any more than one counts the hours when one is asleep but Sunday pulls you up sharply with the reflection, another empty week gone and another empty week coming. A day of rest, too, after a week of nothingness. What a mockery. Mm, Sunday is a bore, certainly, said the Viscount. People are so damned prejudiced. If it wasn't for Tattersalls and the Star and Garter, a rather jolly dinner place near town, you know, sunday would be unbearable but i wouldn't hurry myself about coming back to Hawley, after you've had a season in town if i were you sufficient for the day you know as that fellow shakespeare says in the first place it's a long way ahead and in the second you may never come back at all <laughs> who knows they were sitting on one of the deep old window seats waiting for the two young ladies and mrs cheveny that diplomatic person having contrived to ask hilda ever so many questions about the pictures and to be so fascinated ever and anon by glimpses of that flat waste of verdure called the park as to detain her party for some time by the way thus affording elizabeth and the viscount ample leisure for their tete-a-tete they were sitting side by side in one of the windows elizabeth with her head resting against the ponderous shutter the golden-brown hair melting into the rich brown of the polished oak the heavy eyelids drooping lazily over the dark blue eyes the whole face in a half listless repose very different would have seemed the same face if malcolm Ford had been her companion radiant with a light and life whose glory reginald Paulin was destined never to behold you can't tell what's in the future you see said the viscount looking curiously at the tranquil face opposite him suppose i were to tell your fortune eh miss luttrell i should have to cross your palm with a piece of gold perhaps and i'm sure i haven't any never mind the gold shall i tell your fortune i have no great faith in your prophetic power oh you wouldn't say that if you saw my betting book I have not been out in my calculations three times since the Craven meeting. But that's quite another matter. You have some solid groundwork for your calculations there, and here you have none. Haven't I? Yes, I have. Only you'd be offended if I were to tell you what it is. I must have your hand, please. no, the left, as she offered him the right with a somewhat reluctant air hm yes in this pretty little pink palm i can read a great deal first and foremost that it will be your own fault if you ever go back to hawley parsonage as miss luttrell secondly that you can have as many hunters as you like at your disposal next winter thirdly that it will be your own fault if you have not your pony carriage and outriders for the park in the following spring that's my prophecy of course it will depend in a considerable measure upon yourself whether i prove a true prophet elizabeth's heart beat a little faster as lord paulyn released her hand with just the faintest detention of those slim fingers in his strong grasp was not this the very realisation of her brightest fondest dream of earthly glory rank and wealth fashion and pleasure and splendour seemed as it were flung into her lap like a heap of gathered roses without trouble or effort of her own to compass their winning prizes in life's lottery that she had only thought of in a far-off way as blessings which might come to her sooner or later if fortune were kind but prizes that she had thought of very much and very often to be cast thus at her feet for although the viscount had not in plain words offered her his hand and fortune there was a significance in his tone an earnestness in his looks that made his speech almost a preliminary offer a sounding of the ground before taking a bolder step she gave a little silvery laugh which seemed a sufficient reply to lord paulyn's vaticination even in that moment with a vision of horses and carriages, country seats and opera boxes shining before her, dazzled with the thought of how grand a thing it would be actually to win the position she talked of winning, only in her wildest, most insolent moods, to prove to Gertrude and Diana and all the little world which might have doubted or disparaged her that she was indeed a superior creature, marked out by destiny for a splendid career, even amid such thoughts as these, there came the image of malcolm ford a disturbing presence could i bear my life without him she thought could i ever put him quite out of my mind all her worldly longings her ignorant yearning for the splendours of this world seemed hardly strong enough to weigh against that foolish passion for a man who had never professed any warmer regard for her than for the most commonplace young woman in his congregation if he loved me and asked me to be his wife should i be foolish enough to marry him i wonder she thought while lord paulyn's admiring gaze was still rooted to her thoughtful face would i give up every pleasure i have ever dreamed about for his sake the viscount was happily unconscious of the turn which his companion's thoughts had taken he fancied that it was his own suggestive remarks which had made her thoughtful i fancy i hit her rather hard there he said to himself i don't suppose it'll ever come to anything and i've made my book so as to hedge the matrimonial question altogether but if ever i do marry that's the girl i'll have for my wife not a sixpence to bless herself with of course and there are no end of young women in the market who'd bring me a hatful of money but a man can't have everything and a girl who had been brought up in a Devonshire parsonage wouldn't be likely to have any extravagant notions calculated to ruin a fellow by which sagacious reflection it will be seen that the Viscount was not without the Pauline virtue of economy. Hilda's calm presence appeared anon upon the threshold of the open door, leading the way for the others and This being the last of the state-rooms, the Viscount's opportunities came to an end he was hardly sorry for this perhaps having said already more than he wanted to say but that girl is handsome enough to make any fellow lose his head he said to himself by way of excuse for his own imprudence miss disney surveyed the two with a thoughtful countenance i hope you've been entertained with the pictures miss elizabeth she said with the faintest possible sneer i had no idea that reginald was so accomplished a critic as to keep you amused all this time oh we haven't been looking at the pictures or talking of the pictures half the time replied elizabeth coolly you don't imagine one could interest oneself for an hour with those dingy old portraits we've been talking of ourselves always a most delightful subject miss disney smiled a wintry smile "'Then if we've done with the pictures, we may as well go back to my aunt,' she said. "'Oh, hang it all!' exclaimed Lord Paulyn, looking at his watch, a bulky hunter that had been over more five-barred gates and bullfinches than fall to the lot of many timepieces. "'There's an hour and a half before dinner. We can't shiver in that Siberian drawing-room all that time. "'Put on your wraps and come for a walk in the park.' and i'll take you round to the stables and show you my hunters anything seemed preferable even to aunt chevenix to that dreary drawing-room with its handful of fuel so the ladies clad themselves in shawls and winter jackets and sallied out with lord paulyn to inspect his domain there was very little to see in the park a vast expanse of flat greensward dotted about by some fine old timber Here and there a young plantation of sycamore and poplar, the dowager affected only the cheapest kind of timber, looking pinched and poor in its leaflessness, protected by a rugged post and rail fence, with Lady Pauline's initials branded upon every rail, lest midnight marauders should plunder her fences in their lawless quest for firewood. It was all very sombre and dreary in the early November twilight and the black moorland above them took a threatening aspect as of a sullen giant meditating some vengeance against the house of ashcombe which had lain a vassal at his feet for so long i would rather have the humblest cottage perched up yonder on the summit of that hill cried elizabeth pointing to the dark edge of the moor behind which the faint yellow light was fading than this grand house down here there's something stifling in the atmosphere or you'd find it uncommonly cold up yonder in the winter replied the viscount in his practical way an ashcombe wouldn't be half as bad a place if it was properly kept up with about six times the establishment my mother keeps but she has her whims poor old lady and i'm bound to give way to them as long as she's mistress here how good of you said hilda how very good of you to allow my aunt to deprive herself of luxuries and pleasures in order that you might be the richest man in the county you needn't indulge your natural propensity for sneering at my expense miss disney replied lord pauline rather savagely it amuses my mother to save money and i let her do it just as I should let her keep a room full of tame cats if she had a fancy that way. I don't think your position in the family is one that gives you a right to criticise my conduct. The fair, transparent face flushed faintly for a moment, but Miss Disney vouchsafed no answer, and Diana Latterall plunged valorously into the gap with an eager demand to see the hunters before it grew quite dark very proper indeed thought mrs chevenix that kind of young woman requires a good deal of putting down i never like these dependent cousins about a young man especially if they happen to be good-looking she glanced at miss disney a slim graceful figure of about middle height dressed in a shabby black silk gown but with a certain elegance that was independent of dress a fair delicate face in whose thoughtful calm the chevenix eye could discover very little she had only a general impression that these quiet young women are of all others the most dangerous they went to the stables to see lord paulyn's horses and mrs chevenix had to endure rather an uncomfortable quarter of an hour going in and out of loose boxes where satin-coated steeds with fiery eyes jerked and champed and snorted at her with malignant intentions or seemed so to champ and snort but she bore it all with a lamb-like meekness while elizabeth patted the velvety noses of these creatures with her ungloved hand and stood fearlessly beside them in a manner that went far to confirm the viscount's belief in her vast superiority to the common order of women not that hilda Disney showed any fear of the horses she was as much at home with them as if they had been so many lap-dogs and they seemed to know and love her a fact which mrs chevenix marked with a jealous eye hmm, love me love my dog she thought some people begin by loving the dog It was dark when they left the great roomy quadrangle, where the long row of loose boxes had the air of so many cells for solitary confinement, and Miss Disney conducted them to one of the numerous spare bedrooms to readjust their toilets for the evening, a bedroom which was spare in every sense of the word, sparely furnished with an ancient four-poster and half a dozen grim high-backed chairs, a darksome mahogany dressing-table, a tall, narrow looking-glass, which was a most impartial reflector of the human countenance, making every one alike hideous. Sparely lighted, with a single candle in a massive silver candlestick, engraved with the Pauline arms. Here Hilda left them to their own devices. There was no offer of afternoon tea, and Diana yawned dismally as she cast herself upon one of the high-backed chairs. "'How I wish it was over!' she exclaimed i don't think i ever had such a long day it's all very well for lizzie she has lord paulyn to flirt with and i suppose it's rather nice to flirt with a viscount but miss disney is really the most unget with girl that it was ever my misfortune to encounter miss disney is a very clever young woman my dear for all that replied mrs chevenix mysteriously "'Rely upon it. She has her own views about her position here.' "'You mean she'd like to marry her cousin, I suppose?' said Elizabeth. "'I mean that to do that is the sole aim and object of her life,' replied Mrs. Chauveny with conviction. "'But a design in which she will not succeed.' "'You're so suspicious, Auntie," said Elizabeth carelessly. "'Aren't we to have any more candles?' dear me what a dreadful old place this is something like those goblin castles one reads of in german legends where there are a number of huge ancient rooms and only one old steward and where a traveller begs a night's shelter and is half frightened to death before morning the dinner which elizabeth had looked forward to seeing as a kind of natural curiosity was of a somewhat shadowy and barmecide order like the pale wraith of some decent dinner that had died and been buried a long while ago there was julienne that refuge of the destitute in soups a thin and vapid decoction with a faint flavour of pot-herbs and old bones there was filleted sole la maitre d'hote,l with a good deal more sauce a compound of the bill-sticker and paste-brush order than sole there was curry that rock of refuge for the distressed cook a curry which might have been veal or rabbit or the remains of the ancient fowl that had graced the board at luncheon and there were patties also of a somewhat flavourless order patties that were curiously lacking in individuality the joint is a more serious thing and the cook feeling that her art here was unavailing came to the front boldly with a very small leg of dartmoor mutton which gave place anon to a brace of pheasants The victims of lord paulin's gun the sweets were various preparations of a gelatinous and farinaceous order stately in shape and appearance and faintly flavoured with marsala or essential oil of almonds the dessert consisted of biscuits and almonds and raisins a dish of wintry apples and another of half-ripened oranges and some fossil preparations of crystallised fruit which looked like heirlooms that had been handed down from generation to generation of the paulins this banquet served with a solemn air and a strict observance of the proprieties by the ancient man-of-all-work and a puritanical-looking parlour-maid who evidently had the ancient under her thumb and who gibed at him and scolded him ever and anon in the retirement of the sideboard was a dreary meal but lord paulin had elizabeth on his left hand and found plenty to talk about with that damsel, while the barren courses dragged their slow length along. Mr. Luttrell, to whom a good dinner was the very mainstay of existence, sought in vain to satisfy his appetite with the insignificant morsels of provision that were handed to him by the ancient serving-man. Nor was he able to console himself for the poverty of the menu by a desperate recourse to the bottle for the vintages which the ancient doled out to him were of so thin and sour a character that he was declined to think the still hock was more nearly related to the dowager's own peculiar brand of cider than that lady would have cared to acknowledge he ate his dinner however or made believe to eat with a cheerful countenance heroically concealing the anguish that gnawed him within and did his best to make himself agreeable to lady paulyn who was a strong-minded old woman who read every line of the times newspaper daily and was up in all the ins and outs of the money market being much given to the shifting of her investments and to cautious little speculations and dabbling on her own account the vicar who never had sixpence to invest found it rather uphill work to discuss foreign loans indian irrigation companies and american railways with this astute financier and was glad when the conversation drifted into a political channel when the dowager proclaimed herself an advanced liberal with revolutionary notions about the income tax he was hardly sorry when they all left the table together after a small ration of very indifferent coffee had been served out by the ancient in the nice friendly continental fashion as the dowager remarked with a sprightly air And he found a quiet little dark corner in the drawing-room, dimly illumined with two pair of sallow-complexioned candles, which gave a sickly light, as if just recovering from the jaundice, where he sank into a peaceful and soothing slumber, while Lady Pauline played fox and geese with Mrs. Cheveny, who was enraptured by this small token of favour from the dowager lord paulin insisted upon playing bezique in a remote corner with elizabeth leaving diana and hilda to languish in solitude on one of the grecian couches diana making feeble little attempts at conversation which miss disney would neither encourage nor assist bezique which neither of the players cared about playing afforded a delightful opportunity for flirtation in a shadowy corner where the four languishing candles made darkness visible and it was an opportunity which lord paulyn contrived to make the most of yet he was careful withal not to commit himself to anything serious there was always plenty of time for that kind of thing and he had some years ago made up his mind never to marry unless marriage should offer itself to him backed by very substantial advantages in the way of worldly wealth but this girl this country parson's daughter had attracted and fascinated him as no other woman had ever done he had indeed from his boyhood cherished an antipathy to feminine society preferring to take his ease in a public billiard-room or a stable-yard rather than to sacrifice to the graces of life in a drawing-room or boudoir he was not in the least degree like that typical frenchman of modern french novels who spends his forenoon in arraying himself like the lilies of the field And then sallies forth combed and curled and perfumed to languish in the boudoir of the young marquise de la rochevielle till dinner-time and after dinner elaborately at the café riche repairs to the side-scenes of some easy-going theatre to worship at the shrine of mademoiselle batterman the dancer thus employing his life from morn till midnight in the cultivation of the tender passion Not often did Reginald Paulin meet with a woman whose society he considered worth having. But there was, in Elizabeth's manner, something that charmed him almost as much as her beauty. She was so perfectly at her ease with him, showed at times an insolent depreciation of him, which was refreshing by its novelty, received his adulation with such an air of divine right that he felt a delightful sense of security in her society she was not trying to captivate him like almost all the other young women of his acquaintance her mind was not filled to the brim with the one fact that he was the best match of the season "Hmm. do you think your father would let you ride he asked if i were to put a couple of horses at your disposal and a steady-going old groom i've got down here who'd take no end of care of you i'm quite sure papa would not and even if he would I have no time for riding. No time? Why, what can you find to occupy you down here? I have my poor people to visit. What? exclaimed the Viscount with a look of mingled disgust and mortification. You don't mean to say that you go in for that kind of thing? I thought your eldest sister did it all. I don't see why my sister should have a copyright in good works. Oh No, but really I thought it was quite out of your line. Oh, thanks for the compliment, but you see I am not quite so bad as I seem. I have taken to visiting some of Papa's poorer parishioners lately, and I found the work much pleasanter than I fancied it would be. Ah, you took to it lately, said Lord Pauline with a moody look. I suppose it was that tall curate who put it into your head.' yes it was mr ford who first awakened me to a sense of my duty replied elizabeth fearlessly how long has he been here that fellow what fellow the curate mr ford has been with us nearly two years after this the conversation languished a little while lord paulyn meditated upon the possibilities with regard to miss luttrell and her father's curate she had flashed out at him so indignantly just now as if his disrespectful mention of this man were an offence to herself he determined to push the question a little closer i dare say he's a very decent fellow he said but i could never make much way with men of that kind they seem a distinct breed somehow like the zebra however i've no doubt he's a well-meaning fellow i thought he seemed rather sweet upon your eldest sister elizabeth gave a little scornful laugh mr ford is not sweet upon any one she answered he is a priest for ever after the order of melchizedek or after a more severe order for i believe that matrimony was not forbidden to that ancient priesthood mr ford sets his face against it an artful dodge upon his part perhaps said the viscount doubtfully i dare say he's lying in wait for a wife worth having his keen eyes surveyed elizabeth's face with a searching gaze but could not read the mystery of that splendid countenance he would have gone on talking about the curate but she checked him with an authoritative air i wouldn't trouble myself to discuss mr ford's inclinations if i were you she said you have confessed your inability to sympathize with that kind of person he is a noble-minded man who has marked out a particular line of life for himself There's nothing in common between you and him. Candid, said the Viscount with a careless laugh, but not complimentary. No, I don't suppose my line of life is what you'd call noble-minded. But I mean to win a derby before I die. And I mean to win something else, too. This with the bright red-brown eyes full upon her face. If I make up my mind to go in for it the wagonette was announced at this juncture and mr luttrell awoke from refreshing slumbers to gather his womankind about him and depart from the halls of ashcombe rejoicing in his soul at this release thank goodness that's over he exclaimed as he settled himself in the corner of the wagonette half smothered by his sister's ample draperies and cashmere shawl and if ever lady Pauline catches me trusting myself to her hospitality again she may give me as miserable a dinner as she gave me to-day upon my word wilmot i believe you are the most short-sighted of created beings exclaimed mrs chevenix with a profound sigh it would have required an uncommonly long sight to see anything fit to eat at that dinner answered mr luttrell supper is a meal to which i have a radical objection but if there's anything edible in the house when we get home tonight i shall be strongly tempted to submit my digestion to that ordeal i'm sure i could eat half a barrel of oysters exclaimed diana with a weary air i never went through such a day in my life it's all very fine for aunt Chevony and lizzie to be puffed up with the idea of having made a conquest but anybody can see that lord paulyn is a professed flirt and that his intentions are as meaningless as they can be these are questions said aunt chevenix with dignity which time alone can solve i think we've had an extremely pleasant day and that lady paulin is a woman of wonderful force of character eccentric i admit and somewhat close in her domestic arrangements I'm afraid my cap was on one side all the evening from the inadequacy of light on the toilet table when I dressed for dinner. But a very remarkable woman. That's a safe thing to say of anybody, Aunt, replied Elizabeth. Mrs. Brownrigg, who starved her apprentices to death, was a remarkable woman. End of chapter 9